This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Vores. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, barring instant, is Lyle Fulton. And I'm joined, as I hope I always will be, by the absolutely wonderful Jackie Vores. Jackie, it's safe to say, it has actually been a while. Like now, we don't wish to date these podcasts, but there are days where we sometimes do two or three in a row. And then the illusion is, is that we've done them weeks apart. I've not actually seen you in what seems like ages because we've both been everywhere. So actually, I'm finally able to ask in probably the most genuine way of recent times, how was your last like two ah. weeks been? How has your last 10 days been? How are you? Been that long? Yeah, well, I think a week and a half. Wow, that's not like us. Not like us at all. It might even be two weeks. Good to see you. How are you? How's your last couple of weeks been? Oh, it's been a bit mental, a bit of travelling. Pre-wedding, I've tried to sort of scooch all my things into blocks of time. And so this was my time for doing some trade shows. And I divide them with DAF. So mine were Hamburg and Dubai, whereas DAFs were Seattle and Istanbul and I think Toronto. Yeah, so I got... Hamburg the week before last and Dubai last week to go to two great trade shows. One was Games Forum, which was in Hamburg, which is very industry, games industry based, all ad monetization and user acquisition. And then Pocket Gamer Connects Dubai, which was all about just generally the mobile gaming industry. Unbelievable events, both of them. Really, really well populated. Just all every day is a school day at these events. You learn so much. It's brilliant. And as we always say to our listeners, if you are at any point going to visit the Demozo website or the Demozo LinkedIn or the Demozo Twitter, you will see Instagram, Instagram as well. You will have seen just how busy Jackie, Daff, the entire team at Demozo have been and yeah I mean it looked really really exciting I was following it on LinkedIn it looked absolutely amazing and were you like were you hosting, were you hosting yeah something? I was doing yeah I was doing quite a lot of hosting actually on, on the games forum I got got sort of roped in to do some extra hosting because they uh they had a few uh had somebody let them down at the last minute so I had to quickly gen up and do my stuff and uh, but that was great it was a brand panel so I really liked talking about brands and games and brand marketing so that was really cool and then in Dubai I was on the global trends panel and I was also hosting the AI panel so and you know AI is a big love of mine so yeah Mm -hmm. so that was it was all really great really interesting huge thing and in the latest of my very nuanced segues listeners (laughs) you've heard Jackie mentioned just there She was on the Global Trends panel. Now, a section of society that often follow trends in any industry can often be referred to as fans, fans of a particular product or a particular game or a particular piece of technology. I'm a huge fan of the person we have on the podcast this morning, listeners, because it's finally a football (laughs) podcast. It's finally a football PR amalgam of brilliance. We are delighted, listeners, this morning to be joined by the absolutely brilliant Kevin Ryan. Now, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Before we introduce you properly and say hello and ask you how you're doing and what you've been up to, I would like to first sort of do one of my kind of textbook introductions of Kevin. Kevin, listeners, is the founder and owner of Think Fan Engagement, which was founded in 2018 and publishes the annual Fan Engagement Index 
and the Fan Engagement Pod. So he's a fellow podcaster as well, listeners. I'm so excited. Uh, Think Fan Engagement advises clubs, football clubs, organizations, and brands on their relationships with their fans, strongly advocating a culture of listening. And in the past, Kevin, and it's just going to keep going, by the way, listeners, Kevin began his career in football as an activist fan of AFC Wimbledon. Uh, We won't talk too much about uh, Wimbledon's season last season commiserations but we won't go into that and uh, he has also subsequently then worked for supporters direct and sd europe advising fans clubs governing bodies the government and leading on pr and policy for the organization since 2015 kevin has also been a consultant to clubs and fans and we're going to talk a little bit about the work he's got coming up with another particular football club as well it's just non-stop football I'm so excited because I'm football mad. Kevin, such a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing this fine Tuesday morning? How are things? Fine, yes. Yeah. So I apologise in advance. I know absolutely nothing about the playing side. I couldn't tell you anything about formation. I watch I watch Wimbledon. I love watching Wimbledon. But in reality, I probably still know about as much about the offside rule as anyone else around. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. I mean, so what's great is, you know, you're not alienating any particular section or subsection no, of fans. I'll alienate everyone as, as, as people who know me well. With <laughs> There'll be some fans who also don't understand the offside rule, but absolutely love football as well. Like, you know... <laughs> My mum in particular has never got the offside rule, but loves watching the World Cup. I mentioned briefly that you're about to start a little bit of work with another particular football club. I mean, what I normally ask our guests is, can you tell us a little bit about your career so far and your career today? And I'd love to ask you that question. But I understand you're doing a bit of work with Bristol Rovers and that's coming up and that's quite exciting. Well, yeah, with um, so the sort of... It- because of the pandemic, one of the plans I had when I set up originally was Fan Insights, and I changed the name to Think Fan Engagement. And we were going to—I was going to start doing events, doing networking events, that kind of thing. Um, but obviously, the pandemic put pay to that. Then I tried to do it last November, and train strikes put pay to that. So this time round, we're fingers crossed. I'm running the first of the Fan Engagement Networks, so it's basically for, for for people at clubs who do fan engagement at any level. Because as far as I'm concerned, it needs to be permeating every single level. And myself and Bristol Rovers are putting on a joint event where we just, you know, present. We talk a little bit about, because this is the the industry we're in now in football, what fan engagement is going to be like when there's a regulator, because we're going to have an independent regulator. What's that going to be like? A little bit about that. And then talking a bit about what Bristol Rovers have done and how they make that work um, and how that kind of powers what they do commercially. Because one of the big problems with fan engagement is... Clubs don't always understand the journey from good structured engagement and listening and dialogue to commercial outcomes. They That's tend to what jump I wanted to ask. What, what do you term as fan engagement for? I mean, it's not just football clubs, but I know you're working with football clubs, but it's all kinds of different mm-hmm. entities. But mm-hmm. let's, you know, just focus on football or sports. Mm-hmm. What is fan engagement? What is it and why is it important? So the reason I use the term fan engagement, which will which will explain really, is that I got fed up, to be quite honest with you, of hearing people talking about fun engagement as a tech solution to everything. You work in a tech sector, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you adopt this app, everything will be fine. You go, well, no, because the trouble is, is it's been built on a poor foundation, which is the problem with football. I've, I've done some, just as a segue, I have done a little bit of surveying, for example, and worked a little bit with rugby league. And there's a lot of the same problems in there. Rugby union is also, that's a, that, that's got all sorts of its own problems. But engage, you know, fan engagement is essentially, um, I work on it as a subset of stakeholder engagement. That's my specialism as a public relations practitioner. It's what I focused on when I did my diploma in public relations in 2017. And I looked at it from a football perspective in a football context. And 
it can be tactical. It can be the delivery side. It might be that you are doing things on a match day that are engagement. But the thing that I talk about really is the strategic nature of it, the, the need to understand what I would call the messiness of it and the slight, sometimes chaos. I think also it's a word we try to avoid in football, but it's an absolute, I don't avoid it. I use it all the time. It's an absolute must to embrace it is the politics because when you're coming from the route that I've come, which is very, which is a non-traditional route through the activist route and then become a public relations practitioner, you know, quite often being a fan has been the politics of protest. And what I'm kind of trying to do is get people to the position where it's less about that now. It's much more about the actual practical applications of being a stakeholder in the football club, of the club then listening to what you've got to say, of incorporating into what they do, making better decisions, and ultimately doing better commercial, making better commercial decisions because you realise what's underpinning your business. It's a, it's a lot of it. A lot of what I do is kind of educational in a sense, but also there's a sort of, I think now I can say quite safely, there's quite a sort of high degree of positive disruption in what I do because it's about trying to question what we're doing, which is what the Fan Engagement Index was all about to start with, was, you know, saying, well, look, this is what it is. It's not what you think it is, and it's Mm. not what people have led you to believe. And the final sort of bit, if you like, is, and it's not a a slight on good marketing people, is that I think football has suffered a lot from, from bad marketing, which is really just sales and people trying to push ideas that actually won't work. And if they can work, they will only work with mature businesses that do the listening and do the good fan engagement. So you asked me a question, you're going to get five minutes of going, veering around various points. No, I love it. Kind of the journey, as it were. And I think what you're saying is really backing up a lot of the tenets and the principles of what I talk about, which is really understanding your stakeholder groups, really understanding what they need and want and matching what you have to that. And making sure that you, you you have objectives, clear objective set around what you're going to do with that group. And I think something like fan engagement to me sounds super, super important when it comes to any kind of sporting organisation, because ultimately they are under that sort of real spotlight of criticism from an engaged, passionate audience. Mm. And it's almost shocking to me that some of the clubs don't seem to understand the impact of that you know I could spend if you look you know looking at my background you could see I could spend hours days if not weeks boring everyone silly with (laughs) why things the way they are and it would become a slightly irrelevant lecture on politics and society but you know ultimately we're the product of all these sorts of things I think the sort of the way that I've tried to sort of frame what I do is to is that or that you know, in in terms of what use I bring is that I try to translate. I understand the world of the frustrated fan whose club is on the brink. And I understand the world of the frustrated executive who doesn't have the resources they need to to do the work they want to do. Um, Because football will never pay, very rarely pay for anything other than a new fullback salary, you know, or increasing the striker's goal bonus. I'm afraid it's how it's been. And hopefully what I'm trying to do is to get people to move away from that structure that doesn't work and to get it into the kind, you know, we're all talking about modernity in a modern era, we're talking about using technology in various areas, all those sorts of things. That's fine, but you can't apply that to a business that isn't ready for it or an organisation that can't cope. Mm-hmm. And as you say, the thing about football as well is because they're such, you, you know, distinct, I think we overuse the word unique, but very, very distinct. They are monopolies, local monopolies acting as cartels. Yes. Those are the leagues you can't apply the normal traditions of the normal practices of business. And I think lots and lots of owners have done that 
in the past and it doesn't work. Do you think it comes down to the owners? Do you think it comes down to ownership? I think a lot of it does because I think a lot of things do come down to who owns or controls something. I have two positions, which I think I can't, I think I said it at the start or I might have been in the warm up when we were just chatting is the world as it is and the world as you want it to be, you know, and in an ideal world, I think fan ownership works better than any other model if it's given the opportunity to flourish in the regulatory structures because we're not there and we're not going to be close to that. No. You know, we all talk about, you know, lots of people around me will talk about Germany, right? You try and impose the German model, a similar model. It's in the German Sweden. model for listeners who aren't aware. That basically means member associations essentially control the football club. Okay. They, right. or they you know, you can't, you can't just go selling it off. There's mem- there's essential member control, which kind of, you know, has an impact in terms of the way the, the, the business makes its decisions and it obviously impacts the way football operates. The thing is in Germany, They've got all sorts of traditions that underpin that. The regulation of football is different. Culturally, they're very different as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would also say that we did have many of the traditions they did in terms of things like worker involvement in businesses until the early 1980s, but we don't anymore, right? So the thing we've got to try to do, if if someone's listening and they're a bit bit more, you know, a bit more on the radical side, if you want to get to a point where you could have that kind of system where you have you know, essential fan ownership of control of clubs, you've got to go on a journey. So you might as well go on the same journey as everyone else who wants to just be sensible, because that gives you a good foundation. But ultimately, I work in the industry as it is. And I think there are a lot of people in there trying to do fan engagement as best they can with the fewest resources they can possibly be given half the time. And I think they need as much support as possible. And part of my job is to make their job easier. Because I want people to understand that those people sat there having to deal with all of the issues that get presented to them by fans, either good or bad, those are things that ultimately drive your bottom line and make that possible for you to pay your players and increase your salary for your left back. I want to see people who do fan engagement paid better. I want, I mean, ultimately the conditions will always be a little bit, you know, you're always going to be working a lot more than you maybe would in other industries. It's kind of part of what it's about. But, you know, I think a lot of it for me is about recognising they have a much more important and well-recognized place in in the game and in their clubs you know as much as it is about the actual fans being engaged with it's both sides of it because it will work better that way you know so if we look at you know and I like to align these things to you know any business and if you look at these owner-operated businesses that are the football clubs where do you think they're missing a trick where do you think that you know the, the likes of uh, um I'm going a bit mad here, but I should have ginned up on my owners before I came on the podcast. But there's a big revolt against Everton's ownership mm. and mm. also Tottenham Hotspurs. Where do you think that those guys are missing a trick by not engaging properly with their fans? Well, it's interesting you raise Everton because I know some of the people at Everton. Um, Scott McLeod, for example, who's I think these days might be director of fan engagement, but he's basically um, head of fan engagement and communications. Their team there are brilliant. They do, you know, loads of really good work. From what I understand about Everton, the essential problem is shareholders, uh, you know, what what seems to be a funding issue. That's partly caused by, I'm afraid, the, the financial dynamics of football these days in the Premier League. You know, that is a different issue, a different order of issue to the actual functioning engagement on the part of the staff and what they're doing. So what I always try to do is... But to, is it? Not, not, 
So because to me, to me, you might say they've got a great team. Sorry, I'm going to be a bit controversial no, here. Go ahead. But to me, just as an outside observer and being a massive Brighton fan, and I think Brighton does a very good job with their fan engagement, mm. to me, just as, as an outside observer, I don't think they're doing a good job because the fans don't feel like they're being listened to. No, I, as I said, I think the, there's an issue at the... What I'm trying to get across is that there's an issue with the ownership and the shareholders and the funding. There's an issue, there's a really bad issue there that's, that needs to be sorted out. If I'm completely frank with you, because of what I do these days, I spend less time paying attention to the pure dynamics of ownership as I used to have to. Yeah. But that needs to be sorted out. I mean, I think that, you know, that's an essential reflection of, of the chaos created by the type of financial model we've got in football. All I'm trying to say is that I think... You know, many of the things that you would expect from a team, the dedication is there. Yeah, the problem that Everton have got is that even if the fans are being listened to and engaged with and involved, ultimately they're concerned about the state of the football club. And that's an issue of things like transparency. There's a governance, an overall governance issue in the in the actual company, in the football club. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Those are issues that, for me, shouldn't need to be constantly thought about by either the fans and I don't think even the club because but those are issues of regulation yeah and I think one of the problems that we've had well I'm not going to say I think I know one of the problems that we've had is that fan involvement has ended up being used to solve the problems created by bad regulation and a lot of what I spent my years doing at supporters back to Nesta Europe as well was essentially clearing up the mess left behind by poor ownership and poor governance and regulation so the really important point now is that we are going to have an independent regulator that will remove a lot of those issues, or it will certainly mean that there's an accountability that holds those clubs to account, yeah. that makes them have to think much more about structuring themselves sensibly and, and proportionally and properly. And then we can get to actually doing engagement properly instead of this activism being about constantly trying to save your football club from itself. And just, this is really extraordinarily interesting. I, I am just loving this. Thank you so much. Honestly, like this is clearing so many things up for me. And also I think appropriately not clearing other things up, but I think we're on the, I think Kevin, you and I, and Jackie as well, I think we're all on the same page as to how unclear these things are, like you say, because of the lack of appropriate regulation and governance within football. And what I was going to say, and so I thought I had while I was listening to, to that conversation was how difficult is it for someone in your position at an organization like yours to manage the hierarchical difficulties because I actually just listening to you and the governance difficulties because just listening to you I actually agree with you I think fan engagement teams up and down the football ladder do an amazing job with one hand tied behind their back an example I'd use would for example be I was reading the other day about and this is obviously slightly further up the ladder but Aston Villa for example there's um, a regulation that's coming in in the Premier League in particular, and I think it might be all the way down the ladder, which is that from the beginning of the 2026-2027 season, you're not allowed to have betting firms sponsor your football shirts. And that's that's a regulation that's coming in in three seasons' time. Aston Villa have made the decision that a betting firm will be their shirt sponsor for the upcoming season and for the foreseeable until that regulation comes in. Now, their fan engagement team reached out to or were reached out to by a member association a, you know a, a fan community you know like the official fan organization of Aston Villa and it was basically said to them that you know 95% of the fans if not more 100% disagree with a betting firm being their shirt sponsor 
Now, much as the fan engagement side will turn around and go, and the directors will turn around and go, we understand, they've pressed ahead. And they've pressed ahead because of the financial ramifications of not pressing ahead with that commercial relationship. So they've reached out and they've engaged with fans. And yet, like Jackie says, they've been listened to, but not, you know, not, act, yeah, not acted bit. upon. And, 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 and so it must be really difficult for fan engagement teams to have to deal with the hierarchy. Everton's a good example. You look a few years back, you know, when, when Barry sadly went under, you've got Wigan, you know, who've gone into administration in the past and they're struggling. Sheffield United are in the midst of sort of their third or fourth takeover situation, you know, and then you go further up the pyramid and, and, you, and you even look at, you know, my, my beloved Manchester United, who are still in the midst of a takeover process. You know, fan engagement teams are, are, are trying their best, but you're so well, right in what you say. The governance is the issue, I think. Well, it also, look, I mean, as far as the regulation in, in the Premier League, it's only a Premier League thing. Now, my understanding of it is, uh, I don't want to get in too much into it, is that they're removing it from the shirts, but allowing it on the, on the sleeves, the decals. So I think there's a slight bit of cynicism going on there, if you want my complete, completely honest view. But the Premier League are nothing if not clever. They've, you know, I worked for the last a guy called Phil French, who was the right hand to, to Richard Scudamore for, for some years before he came back and ran Supporters Direct. He came back because he, he, he helped to set it up. And, you know, Phil, Bill Bush, who followed him, and I can't remember who he is now, but that per- the person doing their public policy and their public affairs work there is is someone who's come from government. I think she came from the Foreign Office. The Premier League are nothing if not smart. They know exactly how to manage or what they need to do to manage the politics of the organisation. The essential problem is that they are, at the moment, I think, engaged in a process, understandably, of trying to see off as much of the possible impacts of the independent regulator. So they're trying to do as many things as possible to say, it's fine, we can do this. It's all right. You don't need to do this bit. You don't need to do this bit. You know, ultimately, the regulators come in because the Tories are going to introduce it. If they don't introduce it, Labour will introduce it because they're committed to as well. Ultimately, though, let's just separate out that betting issue and get back to engagement. There are also sometimes some occasions where engagement doesn't mean that fans get to direct the football club's commercial decisions. There are occasions where clubs will do things that might not be exactly how some fans want it. The issue for me, and, and, and by the way, the issue isn't that you listen and ignore, but the issue is appropriateness, proportionality. What's the issue? If you've got, let's say there's a logging company in the Amazon, right, which is a legitimate logging company, wants to sponsor a football club. You know, there's a case there for the, for the, for the fans to say, come on, let's not, I don't, I don't care. Even if it's legitimate, we shouldn't be having sponsorship from an Amazon, Amazonian logging company. Right. That's probably a case where you probably need to not have the sponsorship deal, right? But if you've got an electric car company, what are you going to do? You know, because some people don't like cars, you're going to not have the car company. You know, in the end, there's a, the, the essential issue here is that you've got to marry up the ability of the club to make its commercial decisions with the need to listen and engage. And you've got to show your homework, show your workings out um, and be prepared to be transparent about it. A lot of clubs are beginning to publish their board minutes, for example. Bristol Rovers do, actually. Quite a number of clubs are beginning to do that and something like that. I think a lot of the time with fans, it's not even about they want involvement in all these decisions and processes. A lot of the time, they just want to know that everything's okay. Mm. And I can honestly tell you, if someone sort of shrugs and goes, what on earth does that mean? I can honestly tell you, most people in football who run a football club or work at the coalface dealing with fans, they know when something doesn't meet the test. 
They know when something's basically being covered up or hidden or got lost down the back of the sofa because these things do get lost in the cracks of decision making. And, you know, you know. And I think what's important is, is that fans understand that and they do. They do understand that it's not an easy place to run. They do understand the nature of, I think, a lot of the time of the organisations of the football clubs. But, but, but a lot of the time, they just want assurances that everything's OK. And that's most of the time, you know, what, what my experience of fans at the sharp end and, and being one myself, you know, that's, that's really what most of us want. We don't need to be into the guts of everything. Some people will be, but not many. Has there been, in your experience, and a fantastic answer, by the way, has there been, in your experience an increase in the distance since you set up Think Fan Engagement in the last five years? It sounds like a bit of a loaded question, but I mean, football is, football's an, an industry, in my opinion, I won't go as far as to say unlike no other, but it's certainly unique in the sense that it, it it's dynamically shifting month by month, let alone year by year. I mean, like if you'd have told me, and this is more of a footballing point, but if you'd have told me a month ago, that the likes of Kareem Benzema, N'Golo Kante, these high-profile superstars would all be moving to Saudi Arabia for mega money. Even a month ago, I could have half predicted it, but I wouldn't have predicted it to the extent it started happening. Football is moving so quickly down a certain path. How has that dynamic shift affected your working practices, like what Think Fan Engagement does? I mean, how is is it... Are you embracing that challenge? You know, I'm sure you are, but, you know, or, or, or has it been difficult at times? I mean, because the further you go down the pyramid, if we just take a look at the English model, the further you go down the pyramid now, the distance is growing. I think there's an acknowledgement from Premier League fans that the hundreds of millions of pounds, billions of pounds at times that are changing hands at the likes of Manchester United, Brighton, you know, Arsenal, Liverpool, you know, we're going to appropriately be quite distant because these are, you know, commercial leviathans. But the further you go down the pyramid, it seems that distance is growing now. Despite all of the huff and puff, football clubs are still more like corner shops than hypermarkets. I think that's the important, essential sort of truth. <laughs> and I, I, I was at the, the Football Supporters Association, which is the organisation that exists as a result of the merger of my old organisation, SD, and um, Sports Direct and, and, and the Football Supporters Federation. And I think it was Andy, who's Andy Burnham, who used to be the chair of S Supporters Direct, who I think he said... It might have been him. It might have been someone else, actually. It might have even been a German speaker who said, look, yeah, it was a German speaker from one of the German clubs who came over because it was also football towards Europe. And he said, look, ultimately, and he meant this in the kindest possible way, the local fans are the ones that really drive the business, the, the football club. There's this idea that somehow you can monetize this massive international fan base. And yeah, there are people who absolutely will follow a club from Singapore or, you know, Beijing or wherever. But we know that the stickiness tends to exist closer to the club. You know, when you're closer to it physically, you know, same country, same region, same town, then generally there's going to be more sense of belonging because you're in the physical space, as it were. And if you go to games, even more so. So one of the things that people get have a tendency to do, and this is where I think this is now moving again, we're moving away from that with the independent regulator and a lot of the changes and also the strength and power that fans are demonstrating is that actually I think we're seeing a more of a closeness. I think what you're talking about is the internationalization of football. And obviously another thing that I do is also teach it at UCFB up at Wembley. And we, um, you know, I talk, talk about internationalization and the way in which football clubs are affected by the growth of the political power in a country. You know, Jackie's going over to, I think it was Dubai, wasn't it? You know, look, 
15 years ago, 10 years ago, that, that would have been in Hamburg. You know, you wouldn't have been going to, to Dubai, but now it is. You know, you do have these tremendous amounts of money being thrown around. I mean, we can have whole conversations about the distortion, <laughs> even the appropriateness, or even, you know, whether what they're doing is strictly within the rules. That's for another day. But I think actually you you clear the noise out of the way a bit. Domestically, that's not where things are going. Actually, clubs are being pulled back. The European Super League was the political moment for the government to intervene and say, right, we're going to have the fan-led review that we've promised. And everyone knew it was going to result pretty much in, in an independent regulator. We're going to have an independent regulator. That will change the dynamics of football. I, you know, whether it changes the internationalization bit, you know, um, and you can have whole interesting conversations about that or not. The point is, is there will be some regulation of fan engagement that will be mostly tethered to localized fan bases. You will have clubs moving. Man United are doing it. You know, Brighton have been doing it for a year with their fan advisory board. Clubs are going to be much more sort of determined by their fan bases in terms of what they're able to do in terms of how transparent and open they have to be, they're going to have to be more like that. So don't be too, you know, the, other, the football is a noisy, noisy little baby. It screams <laughs> and cries and wants all the attention. And the, the important thing is, yeah, it will always have this 90-minute dynamic. It's not even month by month. It's, it's, it's match by match and constant racket and constant, you know, check. but actually beneath it all, there are shifts that are perhaps less detectable um, and that's around things like engagement. And yet, you know, the money's always going to be big or is at the moment. But don't be deceived. There are changes happening that are actually going to make it clubs more tethered, I think, and more accountable and more transparent because they have to be. So I'm aware that quite a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily going to be that interested in the business of well, in football, but they will be interested in the business of football and in the business of fan engagement. Let's look at how you do it right. Let's look at the starting place for it. You know, you go in as a consultant, you start working. What's the first steps that you do when you, you're looking at how organi an organisation is engaging with its fans? I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean, one of the problems with football is that it tends to wait until it's kind of a bit too late. <laughs> Well, that's um, with any organisation. It's yeah, I think. Well, I think yeah, and I th I th and I think it's probably. I also think it's kind of a Brit. I think it's a British thing, partly. I think it's Anglo-Saxon. There's a really fantastic. Um, I don't want to go completely off topic, but it it kind of helped to instruct me in how I should think about this stuff, which is a report, uh, a piece of research by Jim McNamara from the University of Technology Sydney, which is creating an architecture of listening in organisations, and it talks about essentially Anglo-Saxon economies so it means australia canada us britain ireland you know private companies essentially so you know this is a problem across a lot of those areas of the world a lot of the time the problem tends to be that businesses football clubs like in british businesses are controlled by shareholders and then they tend to sit on the boards and then they tend to determine everything through that and you know we might go well that why not why wouldn't you well because it doesn't create any distance and it means you don't get much perspective for decision making, I think. It does allow a flex and an ability to move into different areas. But how much can you flex if you're a football club? You're a football club putting on 90 minutes of football twice a week, you know, and then you'll have a reserve side or, you know, your, your developments or that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of I think a lot of my experience of dealing with chief executives is that I think the good ones find perspective 
and lots of them crave perspective and don't get it and don't have the time to have it and because it's so damn fast and because the resources are so thin because everything's driving towards paying the left back more money I think you know I mean this is the problem right and it's why when I came at the issue in 2018 when I set up to think fan engagement and the fan engagement index being my first um, major project was that I realized that if I was going to try and approach football clubs and say right I think what you need is someone like me right and I'm a, I know this stuff so why don't we sit down and talk about it and I did have a couple of meetings I had a meeting at Forest for example with the chairman there and the problem is is that you, you're speaking a completely different language you sit there and start sort of explaining what you do and the good ones will understand but there aren't enough of those because the game isn't attracting necessarily enough of those people because it's such a a mess sometimes and it's so difficult to kind of you know get a handle on good one tell me what a good one will will how what 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 shall i give you i'll give you a few names because actually i find just giving examples tends to be the best way of explaining things you know for example in terms of chief executives you know if you get someone like paul barber in general at brighton you're very lucky to have someone like him so he's a good one because he understands the listening the need to listen the need to be you know listening at all sorts of levels all the time yeah might not get everything perfect and i know there are some people who don't always agree with everything he does but the point is is where you're going with it you know i'd say very generally quietly gets on with it but never gets much recognition is a guy called alistair mcintosh who's chief executive of fulham you know for me one of the great sort of you know he's outlasted so many things that have gone on in that football club because he carries on doing the things that are necessary to ensure that football club's doing you know look again i know the whole campaign so at the moment about he's ticket characteristic price. of a good ceo the ability to listen to a fan base and maybe get that little bit of distance from a business perspective from the shareholders and just be able to take the Jesus yeah. view yeah. of the situation. Yeah. Yes. Then I must, you know, give praise to a couple of others. And one of those would be a guy called Liam Scully, who runs Lincoln City. They're a fascinating sort of slow build, multi, you know, it's a mixed mixed ownership model, bit of fan ownership, private ownership, very sensible guy called Clive Nates, who's the sort of, the, you know, who's kind of governing all of those individual private uh, investors and then another guy called Tom Gorringe who's at Bristol Rovers who actually is is a Brighton fan came through Portsmouth Cardiff City worked at Brighton for a period and now runs Bristol Rovers he's one of the clubs that that now publishes their their board minutes for example and also if I can just say that distance thing it allows you to kind of laugh at things a little bit or you know sometimes you might laugh at it sometimes you might kind of sigh but it that perspective just allows you to go, look, I know the world isn't going to end because something isn't working at the moment. Mm. My job now is to make sure I get it to work. So, you know, for me, the first thing I'm interested in with someone who I speak with about this stuff is, you know, what sense of perspective have you are you able to get on this? Can you get the time? And I, you know, at Wimbledon now, our job is, because we're a fan-owned football club and I'm on the board of the Don's Trust, my job as a director there now is at times to help, along with my other fellow directors, and is to help the club and board, the operational board, the managing director, Danny Macklin, people like that, to have some space to think about things and to sometimes do the thinking for them, maybe to, to write up a paper to explain an issue. Yeah, I mean, I think in the sort of the hothouse of communications, lots of communication is about talking and 
you know, pushing messages out and press agentry, you know, you'll be familiar with that, all that sort of stuff and, and, the, and, and those sorts of things. And actually, a lot of it is about what isn't said, about yeah. the things you don't say. And that's what I try to get across this, to people. This, this to me is the interesting part of football as a business because it's called a football club. And people forget that that word is club. I don't run Demoso Club. I run it as a chief executive of a business. My business is not a club, but football clubs are clubs. And I think that that part of it gets completely yeah. forgotten when they get caught up in the business mm. machinery mm. of everything. And it's interesting because I do a lot of work with community management in games. And what you find is that the games companies that work with their communities in the best ways are the ones that corral those communities and actually have this almost free source of testing a game, coming up with new game features, getting involved, teaching other people how to play yeah. the game, yeah. building, modding in the game, yeah. adding new features to a game. So they've actually, they've, they've cleverly worked with this band of passionate community to help enhance and make their own product there better. you go you you just you know that that's the best possible you know explanation of the benefits of engagement in the way that I sort of talk about it the structured na nature of it the need to make sure that you are doing it actively and, and at all sorts of levels as well you're basically getting free insight you will get so yes look some of it will be useless it will be people moaning about things and I think you know quite obviously and that's that's where your ceo the brains of the ceo yes. needs to, to be applied to say okay yeah. i need to balance this a bit and say okay you might be really right. pissed off about this yeah. but over here is something a little bit more fundamental that we do actually <laughs> listen to you about and we recognize and let's work on that first yeah. let's prioritize yeah. and come yeah. to that stuff later and, all, and, and also jackie that if you one of the things that um is really really important is that someone who who understands this um, area and, and understands how to do engagement knows when they need to pay attention to something that's going on um, and and this happens a lot online is that yeah look there'll be a sort of sometimes people will start complaining about something or bring, raise an issue look is that issue is that two days now is that three days now right well okay but there might be something you need to start doing there you might need to go and talk to someone you might need to go and get a view on something you might need to go and speak to those people but you know quite often it's just the weft and weave it's the going in the pub if we can detach ourselves from social media for a moment, it used to be that you would go to the pub and you'd moan about it afterwards, or you'd be, you know, you'd, you'd talk about it with your friends at work. Now, because we can go into the pub and listen to every single conversation, you know, we take it all on board and it can be quite stressful for people running football yeah, clubs. I mean, this is, again, another interesting thing because all organisations have had to switch their customer service over to listening to social media. It doesn't matter if you're John Lewis or if you're mm. the skip mm. company down the road that's listening to people moan about their skip lorries come down the road. Everybody's had to shift their focus to absorb this kind of like incoming mm. of opinion. And especially mm. when you're in a passionate environment like a club. Mm. I mean, how far do you think that that has impacted? And do you think that social media has impacted for the better or for the worse? It, it just has, right? And I don't think it changes the essentials. I think there's an inter a whole interesting question as to how we move on and begin to filter out things because we can't possibly spend the rest of our existence 
constantly tuning into the racket in the background and we still we have to still make decisions what was the first part of what you asked because i've gone off on one of my famous cold no, no, it was just hit. like you know a customer service really because it's the yeah. same thing i mean um yeah. every organization now has to look at you know getting yeah. opinion yeah. in from all different channels like you know yeah. you get and yeah. I, don't get me wrong i mean i'm the first person to resort to twitter to moan about something if i'm not getting yeah. anything back from an, yeah. a, a normal customer service channel yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, so so this is where we are. I mean, there are all, we all know there are all sorts of tools you can use to, to um, filter what's useful and, and what's less useful. I still think that one of the best things you can do is spend time with people talking with them. I still, you know, it used to be that it was such a radical thing to say to football chief executives and, and, and people working in football and fan engagement roles particularly, but clubs in general. Get out and walk the concourses, spend time listening with people, listening to people, chatting. Because also the other thing as well is that culture feeds back into the online. I think there's a tendency to see online as something else when it's just it's just someone's mouth, right? It's an online version of someone's mouth saying stuff that they might say to you in person or not. Because if you want more transparency, why don't they do webinars of board meetings? Why don't they do podcasts with a fan talking to the well, You know, Jackie, actually, interestingly, there aren't a lot, there aren't, to my knowledge, an awful lot of football clubs that do podcasts. But in terms of broadcasting, quite a lot of clubs broadcast their fans' forums, for example. Broadcast, I mean, Exeter City, another fan-owned football club, they actually open up their board meetings. Um, I don't think every single one but two members who can watch. Um, I mean, I think, look, I, I think it's, you know, the, 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 the sort of the issue for lots of people is that they want to know that things are okay. It's that, that thing that I come back yeah, to again. That reassuring connection. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you appreciate that ultimately people just want to know that the thing that they care about is okay, then there's lots of things you have to do to make sure that's, that people know that you don't just go hey everyone everything's fine you have to publish information for example but a lot of that a lot of the the sort of worries go away you, you know you have to make sure that what you're publishing doesn't say that you're on the verge of bankruptcy now that's a regulatory prop issue right and do then you, that's also do you do messaging with your with your clients do you sit with them and go okay this is no it's not it's not it's not really you know i mean look one of the one of the one of the issues is that and the reason i'm doing the event in bristol at, at the memorial stadium on the 26th of july it's a club event but one of the reasons i'm doing it is is if you think of where i started with the fan engagement index to the podcast the, the fan engagement pod what i'm trying to do is take people kind of on oh it's a terrible phrase but i'm taking people on a journey right i'm trying to get them to to see that the dialogue, transparency, governance of the fan engagement index, the uncovering and talking about the good practice in fan engagement and good communications that I talk about in the pod. You know, I want to now get that up and close with people and talk about it with them there and get them to, to start sharing what they do. Also get them to sort of share across boundaries, that kind of stuff. There isn't heaps. One of the problems is, is there isn't heaps of paid client work in this area. What Because it tends to have been is that it's monetized, monetized, monetized as quick as you can because the money's leaking out. Prune juice economics, Alan Sugar, right? Go back to the early, early part of the, the league, the Premier League that he helped to create. Ultimately, you've got to fix that. What we've then got to do is start to build much more of, if you want to call it this, a sort of sports business model. And when I say sports business model, I mean the very particularities of football. Mm. And it, and probably in the case of rugby league, likewise there, that you actually have 
and other sports that you have an appreciation of the dynamics of the of the the, the prime customer that you have and because being a customer is only one small part of being a fan then it really is very particular and very distinct and you have to make sure that you're doing that properly so a lot of what i do is about framing it is about getting people to talk about it you can't the trouble is as i think if what you do is go in and start talking about messaging then you're doing the essential the essential problem is the same as people coming in and saying get this app just change your messaging and it'll be fine no you the, the problem is is structural with football so well, i'm trying to reform with, the structure of it as well yeah i mean the problem is is and this is why i always talk about coming right back to the basics of strategy and the only way you can understand your your the strategy and the path you want to go down is look at what you want to achieve and hmm. you know it is structural i think it is really affected in club communications with structural stuff i want to just touch on one thing which i i feel quite passionately about how far do you think grassroots plays into fan engagement grassroots of in terms of grassroots activities within the community. So, for example, another one of my favourite clubs is a local club here, Charlton. They do an yeah. awful lot in the community. They, you know, from anything from charitable work, yeah. trust work through to training young children, through to literally connecting their players with the young talent in the area. They're a standout club in terms of their yeah. local grassroots work. And yet an absolute disaster when it comes to fan engagement in the sort of week by week sense. Well, well they, they kind of effectively dismantled the kind of informal model they had where they had a director on the board representing fans who was elected by, I think, the season ticket holders. They lost the connection they had with their past. And if you don't, you know, if you don't institutionalise your learning, I think that can be a real problem because then you forget. Yeah, listeners can't see me nodding away, but I can. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I know a lot of Charlton fans. I I, I sort of worked with the Charlton Supporters Trust, for example. Yeah. I think that look, the way that I try to explain it is there's an overlap between community engagement and fan engagement. Yeah. One of the things that clubs have a tendency to forget is that some of the people they'll be talking to in the community will be the same people they're ignoring when it comes to fan engagement. So see the overlap, understand there is overlap, but also understand the separation that when you talk about how great your community engagement is, is that's not your fan engagement. Do remember that because otherwise you'll not deliver your fan engagement well and you'll channel it all down. And besides which, we're in a beneficial position now that every club pretty much in the 92 has a um, charitable trust, can deliver that work. You know, you need to coordinate, you need to work together, but you also need to put the resources into the fan engagement side as well so it's overlaps isn't it it's concept not concentric circles it's is, strategy that covers everything it's a venn diagram it's a venn, the venn diagram. diagram is what i'm trying to think of yeah there exactly. you go. <laughs> yeah. And it, but then that, that again is that thing of one of the most educational things that i did if you like one of the things that really really taught me so much about what i do now um well two of the things one is you know, I was off on a career as, probably as a social worker when I when I left university. When I went to university, that's kind of what I wanted to do um, because I'd done a lot of informal social work, a lot of care work and stuff like that. And working with so many different client groups and different types of people taught me huge amounts. And then the second part is having to, I did casework the whole time I was at Supporters Direct in SD Europe. I didn't just become some highfalutin policy and public relations person above the hubbub. I was in trying to fix problems, working with fans, clubs, stopping clubs falling over, working with you know all the things I've you know talked about, and it meant that I think it meant that I can recognise the dynamics of a conversation, of a meeting when something's going wrong, I'm alert to it. I think 
And what, you know, that that is, if you're not like that, and I am a bit, you know, I got described as a meerkat by Phil French, my old boss. And I'm a bit like that. I'm very nosy. I'm always sort of paying attention to what's going on around me, trying to sort of engage and understand what that means for what's going on here and who I'm talking with. But if you can't, if you're not that person, try to institutionalize that a bit. Try to find ways of being a nosy meerkat and be interested in what people are saying. And, you know, that that's the essential thing is, is if you can kind of think about everything, whether it's happening online or you're actually face to face, or it's a meeting or, or it's a communication by email, if you can kind of essentially always see the person behind that moan or the conversation and not just, um, you know, a silly name on a forum or, you know, a Twitter handle or even someone just kind of waving their arms and getting angry about the fact that something isn't working in the football club. If you can kind of get it back to basics, which is that you're trying to have human conversations with human beings. These are all these are people and they care about something. And it comes back to that point you were saying with, with what you do with gaming is you've got a resource, right? Yeah, all right, there will be some people who complain, but you've got a massive resource of people. It might be only 50, might be, you know, 500, it might be 5,000, might be 50,000. You've got these people, they will do everything for you to help. They will be your insight, they will give you views. Yeah, sometimes they might be very useful views, but, you know, at all sorts of levels and all the best people who who do the best fan engagement and, and run clubs in the best possible way, owners, chief executives, what have you, people at the front end, they understand that. And they they might, you know, at the end of the day go, God, I really don't want to repeat that again. I didn't really enjoy having to talk to that person or that was a pain in the backside. They will still see the essential value in it. Can I ask you very quickly, and this is something that's really in the public eye, about Wrexham. And what do you think about their fan engagement? Because we've seen a lot in terms of films, documentaries, news. What do you think about that? Well, Wrexham, Wrexham's a club I knew pretty well for a period in the in up to about 2011 when they moved into fan ownership. They were constantly in crisis. It was an absolute mess. I love I loved doing all that stuff, and I loved the places I went to. I fell in love with towns all the time and people and the fans in those places, you know, and I know how much work those fans put in to make sure that club didn't fall over and then was stabilised and it made a, a very clear profit in its final year of fan ownership. I mourn the loss of Wrexham as a fan owned club from my personal perspective. I think it's really it's sad. Not, That's a regulate, regulatory failure. Ryan Reynolds and... Uh... No, so it's that separation of the world as you want it to be and the world as it is, right? And it's a failure of regulation. It's a failure of there not being enough promotion places, you know, and that good clubs are not rewarded and they have to overfund themselves to get out of that, you know, out of problems like that, out of getting out of the the, the, the National League Premier in their case. Uh, as far as Wrexham go, yeah, I mean, you know, great. Um, the problem I have is that there's a lot of money being spent, which is causing hyperinflation in wages in the National League Premier, which is a problem, right? In terms of engagement, well, look, you know, they've got a lot of money. They can do lots of really fancy stuff. And good for them. You know, ultimately, I suppose what's what what ple- I suppose, you know, in a sense, I can I can see why it's really great that the town feels like it's noticed again. And for me, a lot of it just comes down to the fact that I can see why that would be attractive. Mm. I wouldn't want that for my own club. It's not um, a model, is it? It's not a model. Not, that there, is, club no. there is there is no model of finding a, a rich Hollywood, per, couple <laughs> of rich Hollywood types who have proper business interests who are not just a bunch of chancers who seem to actually be serious about this because they're they being are rebuilt. Serious, you can tell the that. copy's being rebuilt there. 
that is a mass, been a massive albatross around the neck of that club for years. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was an international stadium in North Wales. So, you know, I can see, you know, my, my friends and the people I know in Wrexham and the town, damn right. You should, well, it's a city now, damn right. You should enjoy it. And, and, you know, that place needs, those places need to, to feel like they, they need to be important. They need to feel like they're important and, and great. But, you know, what, of course, it, if it wasn't good, given what they've got behind them, and if they weren't successful, yeah, you know, what are you, what are you going to do if you can't make that work? I have a feeling that they could have gone into any club in trouble, but yeah. Wrexham was a really good fit because of the passionate nature of that particular group of fans and because of what had happened in the past yeah. being a fan owned well they were i think to be honest with you they were after i mean apparently hartlepool was the first choice and the owner said no really and that, now he's trying to sell yeah uh, raj singh i think it is um who previously owned darlington but look you know it's it's sort of it's going to be you know no one's going to um um ultimately not enjoy aspects of that journey yeah. and i can't begrudge a bunch of people who work their asses off to stop that club from falling over. Yeah. A bit of joy because I would be an absolute git if I did. But ultimately that is no, that is not a model for anyone. What it is, is an absolute exception that proves the rule. Just as in, just in the same way as Brighton is an exception that proves the rule because most clubs will never have a genuine, and I think we can say this about Tony, but a genuine sugar daddy. They don't exist apart from pretty much Brighton and you could argue say Brentford uh, uh, because that's been one of the problems is, is we've gone around thinking we're going to find a sugar daddy sugar daddies aren't aren't a thing you might occasionally find someone occasionally and the reason for Tony Bloom doing it is very very bound up in his family and his background in the awful story of Brighton and what happened to them but you won't find that most of the time most people need most clubs need to be properly regulated overseen we need proper controls on spending. We need people to just be able to focus on what a football club is and not on all this mess of, find out, you know, ca- can we find someone to come and cover this bit of the wage bill? Can we leverage this in in order to do No, we t- let's get it back to the basic of we're trying to run a football club. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and if you're scared of that, if you don't want that as an owner, then don't own a football club. Go and own a shoe shop. Yeah. I, I, what I will say is there are so, so many thoughts here. I mean, like, what you just said there, there's a reason. And listeners, I mean, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll have seen me do it. But listeners, uh, for those of you that aren't watching the video, I just kind of double fist pump the air because I could not agree with that final sentiment more. I mean, what I would say is um, so many things to unpick as, as we close this episode off as a Manchester United fan. Uh, and I joked with Kevin before we went live, you can hear from my accent that I'm a Manchester United fan. But that only goes to demonstrate the kind of the, the reach of, of, of Manchester United as a football club. I'm incredibly frustrated, not only with how long the takeover process is taking, in terms of Manchester United being bought from the Glazers, but also I'm going to be open and honest. I'm a little bit frustrated about the two parties involved because they are exactly what I. I know really it's not your soapbox. Yeah, I know, but I really hope that. Do you know what I mean? They, they're what I hoped wouldn't own not just my football club. I'm all right. I got a sugar daddy. You've got a sugar daddy, <laughs> but I mean, like you know, for every Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. There's, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that there's another Hollywood film star involved in a football club, and very few people will actually know who that is. And it's a, it's a young, very successful man by the name of Michael B. Jordan, who's a, a fairly serious investor in Bournemouth Football Club up in the Premier League at the other end of the pyramid. And they've been in hot water recently 
the ownership model there, Bill Foley, Michael B. Jordan, other investors, for not particularly listening to their fans because Gary O'Neill, who did a brilliant job last season, is gone and the fans wanted him to stay. So, you know, for every Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney who the fans adore, there are any number of examples of these, you know, sort of very wealthy investors who come in and, and, and perhaps don't listen. But the final thing I would like to say as we close this episode off is something you said so articulated so brilliantly briefly earlier on, Kevin, is that actually um, fans... And I think, Jackie, you kind of emphasised this as well, the overlap of fans and stakeholders. Fans are no longer... Fans are the least fan-like they have ever been, in, in the sense, in a positive way, in the sense that being a football fan is not just about turning up to a football match for 90 minutes and cheering your team on and hoping they win trophies and win football matches and do as well as they possibly can on the pitch. It's, Jackie, you, you articulated perfectly, football clubs are just that they're clubs and you're a fan of the club you're not just a fan of the team you are a fan of the organization and it's time for ownership models and fan engagement teams to realize that it's stakeholder management now it's not fan, you know estate and not fan management fan engagement like there is so much more to communicating with your fan base and communicating with your community than just making sure the team does well on the pitch the team has to do well off the pitch the team has to be something that you're proud of on and off the pitch with everything they do and I think that's a really, really important kind of like takeaway is that actually it's kind of in a really good way, actually, not just about the football anymore. It's about so much more than about the comms. It's about-, it's about the comms now. And thank you so, so much, Kevin. Like I, you know, we this has been understandably an unbelievable episode for me because I'm so glad it's about football. And we will um, we'll link everything um, that you've uh, spoken about. You actually um, you sent me a brilliant article, um, which we kind of touched on a little bit earlier on and when it comes to kind of bar- bad marketing. And there's an article on the Think Fan Engagement website that you sent me, which I had a read over yesterday, uh, Listening or Marketing, um, which is a really fantastic article that you've written on, on, on that on that uh, website. Uh, and we'll also link your website and also the, the podcast um, that the, the platform hosts as well. But Kevin, we'd also just love to have you back on if, if you'll have us. It'd be great to have you back on in the yeah, future to happy. talk about this more. As you, as you can tell, I'm very happy to talk. So, <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so, so much. It's been a genuine, genuine pleasure. A few T's and C's before we let you go, listeners, as we always do. I'm going to see if I can remember these now because it's been so long since uh, I've seen you, Jackie. Um, see if I can remember these. Um, but yes, if you would like to get in touch with uh, The Rest is PR, you can do so via a number of different mediums. You can obviously email us at info at the rest is PR.com and go to that website as well for more information about the podcast, the rest is PR.com. Uh, you can email us at info at demozo.com and head over to demozo.com. We are in love ourselves, this leviathan of a PR agency who are, you know, Jackie and Daff are traveling here, there and everywhere. And you want to, you want to be uh, sort of getting in touch and, and sort of checking out what Demozo have been up to because it's really, really exciting stuff. You can follow us at the rest is PR, capital T, capital R, capital I, capital PR. And also LinkedIn is something that we, you know, we always check Jackie and I, if you want to message us on that platform, you can certainly do so. Jackie, same time next week. What do you reckon? Yes brilliant stuff thank you so much well listeners it's been a genuine pleasure to have you with us once again on the rest is pr we'll see you next week but for the time being from kevin jackie and myself it's bye for now